Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to part two of Demonology and Lore regarding fire demons. Nothing quite like learning more about the impact of fire on our cultures and the mythology and lore that influenced the demons of the old days. Today, I'll be continuing to cover more Moncure Daniel Conway's book, Demonology and Devil Lore, and adding my own little bits of information to spice it up where I think I can add more value. So, let me give you a taster on what I'm covering today. I'll be reading about the practices of jumping over fires, rituals involving fires that were called short due to Christian beliefs, mysticism surrounding fire as a tool of clarity and divination, fire to summon and conjure spirits to heal, and more focus on fire in mysticism, and less about specific demonic influences. And although he covers less about demons in this part of this chapter, he does mention more about sprites and demonic creatures. Now turn the lights off, the sound up, and get ready to learn something different. Now let's look at the Sixth Council of Constantinople, AN 680. By its 65th canon forbids these fires in the following terms. Those bonfires that are kindled by certain people before their shops and houses, over which also they use ridiculously to leap by a certain ancient custom, we command them from henceforth to cease. Whoever, therefore, shall do any such thing, if he be a clergyman, let him be deposed. If he be a layman, let him be excommunicated. For in the fourth book of the kings it is thus written, And Manasseh built an altar to all the host of heaven, in the two courts of the Lord's house, and made his children to pass through the fire. The Manasseh that is being referred to here is the king or kingdom of Judah. He was the only son of Hezekiah, and his wife, Hephzibah, he became a king at age 12 and reigned for 55 years. It was Manasseh who reversed the centralizing reforms of his father, Hezekiah, and re-established local shrines, possibly for economic reasons, and restored polytheistic worship of Baal and Asherah in the temples, and sponsored the Assyrian astral cult throughout Judah. So zealous was he in his worship of the foreign gods, he is said to have participated in the sacrificial cult of Moloch, which consisted of sacrificing young children or passing them through fire. But we can read here this denunciation of this practice from shops and people of all kinds. In this there is a charming naivete within the denunciation. It is no longer doubtful that this bonfire in which these people leapt through came from the same source as the Gena from which the church derived the orthodox theory of hell, as we have already seen. When Shakespeare speaks, from Macbeth, of the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire, he is, with his wanted felicity, assigning the flames of hell and the fires of Moloch and Baal their correct archaeological relation. In my boyhood, I have often leaped over a bonfire in a part of the state Virginia, mainly settled by Scotch families, with whom probably the custom migrated thither in the superstitions of other races, and keely, southern state fires played a big part in this. It is hardly possible now to determine whether they have drifted there from Africa or England. Sometimes there are queer coincidences between their notions 
and some of the early legends of Britain. Thus, the tradition of the shepherd guided by a distant fire to the entrance of King Arthur's subterranean hall, where a flame fed by no fuel coming through the floor, revealing the slumbering monarch and his court, resembles somewhat stories I have heard from others in the land, of their being led by distant fires to lucky, others say unlucky, or at any rate, enchanted spots. A colleague of my father told me once, that as he was walking on a country road, he saw a great fire in the distance. He supposed it must be a house on fire, and hastened toward it. Meantime, much puzzled, since he knew of no house in that direction. As he went on his way, he turned into a small wood near where the fire seemed to be. But when he emerged, all he found was a single fire coal burning in the ground. There were no other traces whatever of fire. But just then a large dog leaped past him with a loud bark and disappeared. In a letter on Vadusium in Virginia, which appeared in the New York Tribune dated Richmond, September 17th, 1875, occurs an account of a class of superstitions generally kept close from the populace, as I have always believed their origin from African descent. As will be seen, fire represents an important attribute in superstitious practices. If an ignorant person is smitten with a disease which he cannot comprehend, he often imagines himself the victim of witchcraft, and perhaps having no faith in mainstream science for such ailments, must apply for an alternative. A physician residing near this city was invited by such a one to witness his mode of procedure with a dropsical patient for whom the physician in question had occasionally charitably prescribed. Curiosity led him to attend the seance, having previously informed the physician that since the case was in such hands, he relinquished all connection with it. On the coverlet of the bed on which the sick man lay was spread a quantity of bones, feathers, and other objects. The physician went through with a series of conjurations, burned feathers, hair, and tiny fragments of wood in a charcoal furnace, and spoke in low tones past most of those in the room's comprehension. He then proceeded to rip open the pillows and bolsters and took from them conglomerations of feathers. These, he said, had caused all the trouble. Sprinkling a whitish powder over them, he burnt them in the furnace, and a black offensive smoke was produced and he announced triumphantly that the evil influence was destroyed, and that the patient would surely get well. He died not many days later, believing, in common with all his friends and relatives, that the conjurations of the alternative physician had failed to save him only because it was resorted to too late. The following account of a spell from which his wife was rescued was given to me by another colleague in Virginia. The wizard to quote the exact words of my informant, threw a stick on a chest. The stick bounded like a trap ball three times. Then he opened the chest, took out something like dust or clay, and put it into a cup with water over a fire. Then he poured it over a board, after chopping it three times, which he then put up beneath the shingles of the house. Returning to the chest, he took a piece of old chain near the length of my hand, and took a hoe and buried the chain near the sill of the door of my wife's house, where she would pass. Then he went away. I saw my wife coming and called to her not to pass, and to go for a hoe and dig up the place. She did this, and I took up the chain. 
which burned the ends of all my fingers clean off. The same night the conjurer came back, my wife took two half dollars and a quarter in silver and threw them on the ground before him. The man seemed as if he was shocked, and then offered her his hand, which she refused to take, as I had bid her not to let him touch her. He left and never came to the house again. The spell was broken. I am convinced that this is pure voodoo procedure, and it is interesting in several regards. The introduction of the chain may have been the result of the excitement of the times, for it was during the war when slavery was ceasing, and the breaking of chains symbolized that. The fire and water show how widespread in Africa is that double ordeal which is well known in the Kingdom of Dahomey. The Kingdom of Dahomey was an African kingdom that existed from 1600 to 1894. There are multiple names for the Kingdom of Dahomey, such as Danxome, Danhome, and Fon. And this kingdom had its own unique ceremonies, beliefs, and religious stories for the kingdom. They are known to worship their ancestors and the land of the dead, asking for support and permission from them for their activities on earth, and speaks to the fire practices that Moncure Daniel Conway talks about, that Manasa was part of. There is a darker side to their celebrations in that a human sacrifice was an important part of the practice. There was an annual custom where 500 prisoners would be sacrificed, and if a ruler died, hundreds to thousands of prisoners would be sacrificed. The highest amount reported killed was 4,000 in one of the ceremonies of 1727. In saying this, the Dahomey Kingdom of course wasn't the only ones that used fire in their practices. Let's take a look at Jewish practice and ritual. The mingling of something like dust with the water held in a cup over the fire is strongly suggestive of the Jewish method of preparing holy water, otherwise known as the water of separation, good from evil, clean from the unclean. For an unclean person, they shall take off the dust of the burnt heifer of purification for sin, and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. The fiery element of the mixture was in this case imported with the ashes of the red heifer. As for this sacrifice of the red heifer itself, it was plainly the propitiation of a fiery demon. When they refer to propitiation of a demon, they mean summoning, acquiring, or placating a demon. In Egypt, red hair and red animals of all kinds were considered infernal, and all the details of this sacrifice show that the colour of this selected heifer was typical. The heifer was not a usual sacrifice. A red one was obviously by its colour marked for the genie of fire, the terrible seven, and not to be denied them. Its blood was sprinkled seven times before the tabernacle, and the rest was utterly consumed, including the hide, which is particularly mentioned, and the ashes taken to make the water of separation. The following interesting story of the Chinese fire god was supplied to Mr. Denny's by Mr. Playfair of H.M. Consulate, to whom it was related in Peking, as it is natural in a city built for the most part of very combustible materials. The idols representing the god are, with one exception, decked with red beards, typifying by their colour the element under his control. The exceptional god has a white beard, and thereby hangs a tail. A hundred years ago, the Chinese imperial revenue was in much better case 
than it is now. At that time, they had not yet come into collision with Western powers, and the word indemnity had not, so far, found a place in their vocabulary. Internal rebellions were checked as soon as they broke out, and in one word, Qian Lung was in less embarrassed circumstances than Kuang Xiu. He had more money to spend, and did, laying out a good deal in the way of palaces. His favourite building, and one on which no expense had been spared, was the Hall of Contemplation. This hall was of very large dimensions. The rafters and the pillars which supported the roof were of a size such as no trees in China furnish nowadays. They were not originally sent as an offering by the Tripituary Monarch of some tropical country like Burma or Siang. Two men could barely join hands around the pillars. They were cased in lustrous jet black lacquer, which, while adding to the beauty of their appearance, was also supposed to make them less liable to combustion. Indeed, every care was taken that no fire should approach the building, no lighted lamps was allowed in the precincts, and to have smoked a pipe inside those walls would have been punished with death. The floor of the hall was of different coloured marbles, in a mosaic of flowers and mystic Chinese characters, always kept polished like a mirror. The sides of the room were lined with rare books and precious manuscripts. It was, in short, the finest place in the imperial city, and it was the pride of Qian Lung. Alas for the vanity of human wishes, in spite of every precaution, one night a fire broke out, and the Hall of Contemplation was in danger. The Chinese of a century ago, though, were not without fire engines, and although would struggle against our modern London Day Fire Brigade, they were better than nothing, and a hundred of them were soon working around the burning building. The Emperor came out to superintend their efforts, and encourage them to renew their exertions, but the whole was doomed. And more than earthly power was directing the flames, and mortal efforts were of no avail. For on one of the burning rafters, Qian Lung saw the figure of a little old man, with a long white beard, standing in a triumphant attitude. It is the god of fire, said the emperor. We can do nothing. So the building was allowed to blaze in peace. The next day, Qian Lung appointed a commission to go the round of the Peking temples in order to discover in which of them there was a fire god with a white beard, that he might worship him and appease the offended deity. The search was fruitless. All the fire gods had red beards, but the commission had done its work badly. Being highly respected mandarins of genteel families, they had confined their search to such temples as were in good repair and of creditable exterior. Outside the north gate of the imperial city was one old, dilapidated, disreputable shrine which they had overlooked. It had been crumbling away for years, and even the dread figure of the god of fire, which sat above the altar, had not escaped desecration. Time has thinned his flowing locks, Kian said, and the beard had fallen away altogether. One day, some water carriers who frequented the locality thought, either in charity or by way of a joke, that the face would look better with a new beard. So they unveiled some cord, and with the frayed-out hemp adorned the beardless chin. An official passing the temple one day peeped out in curiosity, and saw the hempen beard. Just the thing the emperor was inquiring about, said he to himself, 
and he took the news to the palace without delay. The next day, there was a state visit to the dilapidated temple, and Qian Lung made obeisance and vowed a vow. O fire god, said he, thou hast been wroth with me, in that I have built my palaces, and left thy shrine unhonored and in ruins. Here do I vow to build there a temple, surpassed by none other of the fire gods in Peking. But I shall expect thee in future not to meddle with my palaces. The emperor was as good as his word. The new temple is on the site of the old one, and the fire god has a flowing beard of fine white hair. In the San Francisco Bulletin, I recently read a description of the celebration by the Chinese in that city of the Feast for the Dead, in which there are some significant features. The chief's attention was paid, says the reporter, to a figure representing what answers in their theology to our devil, before proceeding with their workshop over individual graves. This figure is on the west side of the temple. Before and around it, candles and joysticks were kept burning around it. On the east side was a better-looking figure, to which they paid comparatively little attention. It was of course but natural that the demon of fire should gradually be dispelled from the element in its normal aspect, as its uses become more important through human invention and its evil possibilities were mastered. Such demons became gradually located in the region of especially dangerous fires, as volcanoes and boiling springs. The titan whom the ancients believed struggling beneath Etna remained there as the devil in the Christian age. Saint Agatha is said to have prevented his vomiting fire for a century by her prayers. Saint Philip ascended the same mountain and with book and candle pronounced a prayer of exorcism at which three devils came out like fiery flying stones crying, Woe is us! We are still hunted by Peter through Philip the Elder. The volcanoes originated the beliefs that hell is at the Earth's center, and their busy Vulcans of classic ages have been easily transformed into sulfurious lords of the Christian hell. Such is the medieval harborum, demon of arson, with his three heads, man, cat, and serpent, who rides through the air mounted on a serpent and bears in his hand a flaming torch. The astrologers assigned him command of 26 legions of demons in hell, and the superstitions often saw him laughing on the roofs of burning houses. But still more dignified is Rome, who commands 30 legions and who destroys villages. To those who are unfamiliar with the name Rome, that's R-U-A-M, he is essentially the Great Earl of Hell, depicted as a crow which can also transform into a human at request of the conjurer. Here's a quote about Rome, Johann Weyer, taken from the Pseudomonarchia Daemonum. Rome is a great earl, he is seen as a crow, but when he putteth on human shape at the commandment of the exorcist, he stealeth wonderful out of the kingdom's house, and carrieth it whether he assigned. He destroyeth cities, and hath great despite unto dignities. He knoweth things present, past and to come, and reconcileth friends and foes. He was of the order of thrones, and governeth thirty legions. Hence, also, concerned in the destruction of war, and although this made his usual form of apparition on the right rank of the Rhine, that of the Odinistic raven, on the left bank, he may be detected in the little red man 
who was reported as the familiar of Napoleon I, serving as a guider and an advisor for Napoleon during his career. Among Mr. Gill's South Pacific myths is one of a Prometheus Maui, who by assistance of a red pigeon, gets from the subterranean fire demon the secret of producing fire by rubbing sticks. The demon, Maui, being then consumed with his realm, a fire being brought to the upper world to remain the friend of man. In Vedic legend, when the world was enveloped in darkness, the gods prayed to Agni, who suddenly burst out of Vastri, pure fire, the prime example of the Vedic Vulcan, and to the dismay of the universe. And yet another example, in Ediac sagas, Loki was deemed the most voracious of beings until defeated in an eating match with Logi, also known as the Devouring Fire. Survivals of belief in the fiery nature of demons are very numerous, thus it is a very common belief that the devil cannot touch or cross water, and may therefore be escaped by leaping a stream. This has sometimes been supposed to have something to do with the purifying character of water, but there are many instances in Christian folklore where the devil is shown quite independent of even holy water if it is not sprinkled on him or does not wet his feet. Thus, in the Norfolk legend concerning St. Godric, the devil is said to have thrown the vessel with its holy water at the saint's head out of anger, mainly due to a song he was singing that the Virgin Mary taught him. But when the devil attacked him in various ferocious animal shapes, St. Godric escaped by running into the river, where he sometimes stood all night in running water up to his neck. And this moves us on to kobolds. Kobold, spelled K-O-B-O-L-D, is a sprite that stems from Germanic mythology and German folklore. They are normally invisible, but they can materialize in the forms of animals, dolls, fire, a human being, and at times, candles. The most common depiction of kobolds showed them as human-like figures the size of small children. The kobolds get their red jackets from their fiery nature. Originally, the La Familiaris of Germany, the kobold became of many varieties, but in one line he has been developed from the house spirit, whose good or evil temper was recognized in the comforts or dangers of fire to a special stone demon. Let's take a quick look at the transformative powers of fire. For example, the hell dog in Faust's room takes refuge from the spell of Solomon's key. Behind the very same stone, therein resides the kobold, and is there transformed to a human shape. The German maidens read many pretty oracles in the behavior of the fire, and the like in that of its fellow warsager, the house dog. It is indeed a widespread notion that imps and witches lurk about the fireside, obviously in cat and dog, and ride through the air on implements that usually stand about the fire, shovel, tongs, or broom. In Paris, it is formerly the custom to throw 24 cats into the fire on St. John's Night, the animals being, according to M.D. Plancy, emblems of the devil. So were replaced the holocaust of human witches, until at last, civilization rang out its curfew for all such fires as that. And this concludes the second chapter of Demonology and Devil Law by Moncure Daniel Conway in 1879. Well, I hope you enjoyed this chapter about fire demons and heat. I can tell you I've learned a bucket load here, and I hope you have too. 
I hope this chapter was able to bring some new ideas, some new thoughts around what you already knew about demons and devils. For some of you it might be all new, and for some of you out there might be confirming what you already knew. <laughs> but either way, I always find these older texts fascinating. It's both a time capsule of the thoughts and ideas of the past, and you can see how it translates to modern day society and our current beliefs. So that connection is always fascinating to me. Something that I wanted to share with you all. Also, there are plenty of stories tucked away in this text alone. The only trouble is, conflicting Roman and Greek mythology, and trying to figure out the differences in them. And accurately. <laughs> There's probably an episode just in that, goodness. Next in line though, mates, with Demonology and Devil Law by Moncure Daniel Conway is... Cold demons, oh yeah. Nothing but the frost. As expected, after heat comes the cold. And we cover topics like survival of the frost giant in Slavonic and other countries, the frozen hell, bardism, and boulder, to name a few. So much in chapter 3, mates. Now, it's a lovely Friday in Australia, and I hope you're doing fantastic. Next week, though, I have some creepy stories heading your way. Yes, as always, I'm shaking things up a bit. So I'll be lining them up this weekend for your lovely ears, chatting to authors, and trying to get the best ones for you. So I can't wait. Now, my demonic champions and devilish sprites, have a kick-ass weekend, and I'll see you Monday. As always, till next time.